This episode is dedicated to Shinchan, Joy, and Rihanna for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Dr. Han Ren. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have the colonial psychologist and therapist to the TikTok generation, Dr. Han Ren. Hi, Dr. Ren. Hi, how's it going? You know, it's like a constant Groundhog's Day, I think, especially with the pandemic. Absolutely. I feel you. So let me start off by asking, when you make your TikTok videos, do you choreograph your dance moves ahead of time or is it all freestyle? Um, historically it's been all freestyle. I am known for my terrible dance moves because I don't have very good rhythm, Um, (laughs) but (laughs) I've been trying to get into some of the trends and memes a little bit and like actually do some of the, the, the choreographed dance moves. So that might be a a new addition to my content someday soon. Yeah. I think TikTok now is known for so many other things, but when I first got on and probably when you first got on, it really was like 80% dance tutorials. And a lot of the creators who teach you how to dance do such a good job breaking it like step by step. So I think, yeah, I think TikTok might be a vehicle where uh, a lot of us can learn how to dance a little bit. (laughs) Since your videos tend to be geared towards young marginalized people, let's break from any assumptions that people know anything and start from the ground up. What is mental health? I think there are so many definitions for mental health, um, but I think of it as the ability to cope with stressors, learn from experience, and activate support systems and resources when needed. Um, I think mental health requires self-reflection and knowing and valuing yourself enough through self-awareness that you can value and develop a sense of self-worth. And what do you mean by self-worth? Just knowing that you are lovable and that you deserve to take up space in the universe. Is mental health the same as emotional health? 
Um, I think there's a lot of overlaps, but I, I really think of emotional health as maybe a subset of mental health. Um, feelings get a really bad rep in our society, and we kind of tend to think of it as you know weakness or um, frivolous, whereas I think of feelings as such a necessary um, you know, packet of intelligence that tells your thoughts and your the rest of your brain like what to do next and um, is a huge part of decision making. So, you know, emotional health is really the ability to identify and experience your emotions as they come up without trying to change them or avoid them or, you know, fit them in familiar talk tracks um, that we're more comfortable with, whether it's actually good for us or not. I was just thinking about what you just said about feelings. And I saw a recent uh, photo somebody posted online where they took a picture of all the best selling self-help books right now at a bookstore. And all the books were called something like fuck your feelings or <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was all something about unfuck yourself or mm. all those kind of ideas. So I think that speaks to your point, even in pop self-help, that idea that feelings don't matter. You know, I think, I mean, maybe this is coincidental, but I, I wonder if this is related to pandemic times, because right now to feel deeply can become so unbearable because we have all this extra time and, you know, space and isolation. And to really feel your feelings can be very distressing. So I wonder if people are, um, you know, really gravitating towards books to help them numb some of that in order to better, you know, cope. But I think ultimately, you know, if you can like develop a toggle switch or like a dimmer switch for your emotions, like, you know, that is part of like emotional health and mental health, because you can't be like just so dysregulated and distressed all the time. But if you use numbing as your primary or only way of coping, then you kind of miss the point. This actually leads to my next question, then. What is therapy? I think the easiest way to define therapy is um, it's a psychological intervention where a trained professional bears witness to your experiences, uh, both the painful ones and the joyous ones, and helps you to process, understand, and integrate it into your understanding and narrative of yourself and your life. Um, it also teaches you um, how, to, how your mind works and gives you some skills um, for coping with the distress that life throws at you. And it also offers a perspective to um, you know, mirror or understand your experiences a little bit differently. Um, I used to say it offers you an objective perspective, but I, I think now I don't believe that anything can be truly objective, but it's the point of view of somebody who isn't directly involved in your life and won't you know, can, can speak more freely because they won't be impacted by your decisions. You just said something that I think needs some highlighting, which is bears witness, mm -hmm. that the therapist bears witness. So why is that so important? Because a lot of people, even when uh, they talk about therapy and why it's important for them, maybe they never even like came upon those terms, but it seems to like describe what they're feeling when they see a therapist. Yeah, um, I think one of the core elements of being human is the ability to be seen and valued by others and like valued because of how we are and you know seen as how we truly are and not because of you know how others want us to be or how we think we should be in order to fit in and so you know i think of the therapy relationship as one of the most intimate and raw places where you can just show up as you truly are without having to 
you know, mold or um, contort yourself. Um, and then I also think of like, this is why like therapy will never truly be replaced by apps or um, AI because we need that human connection to really bear witness, especially to, you know, one's pain um, in order to begin to really heal. It seems to tie back to what you said earlier about self-worth. For sure. I know a lot of people who've been to therapy, myself included. I also know a lot of people who've never been to therapy. I want to avoid blaming it all on stigma because I know a lot of people who don't go to doctors or dentists, period. I get stigma as a real thing, but I also want to be sensitive and avoid carelessly throwing around simplistic explanations that can come from internalized privilege. A lot of not going to therapy has to do with costs. A lot of not going to get any form of treatment has to do with costs. So I don't want to use not seeing a therapist as a way to further stigmatize and victim blame the poor. So for a variety of reasons, many people may be unfamiliar with therapy. It's something that's never seemed realistic for them, almost alien. So as a therapist, can you educate us on the benefits of therapy and how it can be useful? Assuming you find the right therapist, of course. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the right therapist is really key. But being able to work with a good therapist is like looking at your internal self in a mirror and being coached on ways to make changes in the directions that you seek so you can live towards the values that are important to you. Um, I, it, it's, it's like a set time that you hold um, regularly, whether you have a lot going on in your life or not to help you clarify both big picture goals and also minutia that really influence, you know, your self-concept and decision-making. I, I think having that regular frame for self-reflection can be hugely helpful with both accountability um, and just like giving your brain and body the space it needs to grow and develop. Much like your videos, I'm hoping this episode itself can be a free way for people to begin to think about their own mental and emotional welfare. But with that said, are there low cost to free options out there for people who want to seek therapy but have been too afraid that it was outside of their financial means? Absolutely. I actually have a video on this. Um, yeah. So there's therapy funds that are kind of location dependent. Um and crowdfunded through mutual aid. That's a great way to start. Um, a lot of them are specific to BIPOC. Um, there's the Loveland Foundation, which is specific to Black women. Um, there's community mental health centers um, that offer low cost or sliding scale uh, therapy. And you know, sometimes working with a student or an intern who is under supervision is a great uh, cost effective way. And it's kind of like getting two therapists in one because they're also under supervision. So you have the perspective of their supervisor. Um, online therapy platforms tend to also be more cost effective. And uh, last but not least, you know, most therapists offer at least a few sliding scale or pro bono slots. So it never hurts to ask. Um, those spots tend to be taken up, um, especially if, you know, your therapist that you want to see is in high demand, but it might take a while to get a spot. Um, and a lot of therapists have wait lists for those spots. From my own experience, uh, when I was in college, that was when I went to therapy for the first time and it was offered through the school. So it was a student, mm -hmm. a grad student. And what was good about it for me and probably better than just going to somebody who was a practicing therapist for the first time was that they were my peer. You know, I felt like I was talking horizontally to somebody, which made it a lot less 
intimidating for the first time. And I think just because of our age proximity, they related to me better, but also because they were students, there was much more diversity amongst the students. So I found somebody who was also an Asian American near my age, and that made it so much easier. So I would also say just because they aren't a practicing therapist isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially if it's your first time and especially if you're young. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. College mental health centers are a great way, you know, especially for like intro to therapy. And they're, they're usually pretty good about referring out the more complex cases or if they think that you might need something a little bit more ongoing or long term. And they also often have groups, which um, can also be hugely helpful. I think for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous and people of color, there's an added element beyond just the financial that they can't find a therapist who looks like them and therefore can't relate to them, which I spoke of as far as my own concerns. I know you've talked about being in therapy before becoming a therapist. So can you tell us a bit about your positionality, meaning your ethnic background, and if your parents were immigrants, and if you ever had problems getting a therapist to connect with your positionality? Yeah, so my parents are Chinese immigrants, and I'm also a 1.5 generation immigrant, meaning I moved to the States when I was five. So I grew up as a third culture kid, which was difficult in many ways, um, especially now looking in hindsight and realizing that my parents were dealing with their own trauma reactions and survival instincts from immigration, as well as um, the Chinese Cultural Revolution. So they were they were surviving, and um, I was trying to grow as a human and survive underneath um, that parenting. So when I first started therapy, I was fourteen, and uh, there was a sense of desperation and urgency to really feel heard and validated. Um, So even though at that time, my therapist was this older white lady, it didn't matter as much to me because it was just having that person bear witness and having someone, you know, share that my thoughts and feelings were important and mattered and weren't wrong. However, as I've I've aged and gotten more clear on my own racial identity and and also training in um, becoming a therapist and in recent years, um, reckoning with my own racial trauma um, and just learning more about racial trauma in general, it's become increasingly important to me to have a therapist with similar lived experience. So my last therapist was uh, another older white lady. And this time it did matter um, that my positionality was so different from hers. And um, she just didn't know what she didn't know. And I, I couldn't deal with the ways that um, the white supremacy culture showed up in the therapy room. So to find a different therapist, but my current therapist is a woman of color. um, And she's really wonderful. Um, You know, realizing that this was the first therapist of color I've ever had in my life. And I've been to a lot of therapy. Mm. So it just really shows how white dominated this field is. And a term you use, racial trauma. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, it, it is the trauma that we experience from living in the United States as a person of color. And I I think to some degree, every person of color experiences a form of it. Um, And I think it's gained so much more traction and validity in the past four years, you know, since Trump was elected, because it brought to the surface all of this racist, you know, vitriol that people were holding, you know, both like the very, you know, overt racism, but also like the covert racism. And, um, you know, it's it's always existed. But I think before Trump, 
there was a lot more gaslighting of it. Like, oh, it's fine. You're too sensitive. But now, you know, a, a lot of people are speaking up and saying like, my sense of safety and the way that I approach the world and my anxiety and my hypervigilance are all so tied up with my identity. I've had a lot of peers who've gone to therapy or even just like well-meaning people around them when they describe their racial trauma. Maybe they didn't have words for it yet. They didn't know how to call it racial trauma, but what they were describing was definitely trauma from racism. And people would just chalk it up to being depressed. Like even a therapist, they just say, oh, you're just depressed. And it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, maybe ultimately I am depressed, but how I got there (laughs) like matters. And also understanding that it's not like something temporarily within me, but it's like this permanent condition that I'm going to be living in then the therapist's approach has to be different. So even if it's depression from racial trauma, they have to understand what the origins are. So I think to your point about gaslighting, for a lot of us, we were gaslit into thinking, oh, it's just depression. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Like just change the way that you think or exercise more. Maybe you should try meditation. It's like, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum and I can approach like the way I relate to myself differently, but I still have to live in this world. And that onslaught of racial trauma doesn't stop. Along those lines, then, what are the origins of Western psychology as we know it? Yeah. So, you know, I really think of you know, some major eras of Western psychology. Um, you know, we think of Western psychiatry with Benjamin Rush, who was one of the signers of the Constitution. Um, he's the, the father of psychiatry. Um, and he was an abolitionist, but also like owned a slave and believed that um, like blackness was caused by leprosy. And, <laughs> you know, he needed to cure the leprosy, then black people would be white. Uh. Um, and so, you know, I think of him as like the physician, the psychiatry father, and then the father of modern psychotherapy, Sigmund Freud, who had um, problems of his own in, especially in the way that he related to women and children, even though he saw, he never saw any children and he had all of these ideas about, you know, pathology and children. Um, and then more recently in like the mid 1900s, you know, Watson and Skinner, um, they're kind of the fathers of behaviorism where we really took, um, Western psychology from like what's going on inside the mind to what's going on in action and the ways that it manifests in the way, um, yeah, in the ways that we interact with the world. Um, so these are all white men who are products of their time and environment and, you know, all carry kind of a limited scope and view on human functioning. Um, so there's been an evolution from, you know, the internal to the observable. And then, you know, more recently in the past 50 to 70 years or so, you know, combination of both with the development of cognitive behavioral therapy, where it's both like, your thoughts matter as well as your behaviors and actions. Um, And so the focus on systems is relatively new, um, new as in probably like 1970s and up. And that's really been historically more the context of, you know, sociology or anthropology. And so in psychology, to bring in systems theory, Um, It was a focus on family systems or work organizational systems. Um, But in anti-oppressive and liberation frameworks, systems theory is really essential to the way that we view and construct human functioning. You know, we are all embedded in nested systems. So Brofenbrenner's ecological model is, you know, from the 
the micro to the meso, um, we have these like con- concentric circles of embedded systems in which we live and operate and are influenced both by the system and then we also you know impact change and influence the systems that we inhabit. That's interesting because I was uh, recently listening to an audio book. Actually, it's my wife's audio book, so I don't even know what the name of the book is, but it's, it was about parenting. Mm-hmm. And the author was talking about behavioralism mm. and how basically that's like America, the U.S.'s contribution to psychology. Mm-hmm. It was using it to indict America, mm. using it to indict like how uh, Americans, Western white Americans think about parenting and also psychology which they were saying was anti-systems and it was anti-intellectual. So they were talking about pragmatism was like another aspect of uh, American influence to philosophy, mm-hmm. um, rationalism, all these things that sound smart. But this doctor who wrote the book was saying, these are actually not smart. These are anti-intellectual ideas because it's almost like, I guess uh, the too long didn't read summary would be all of these are kind of status quo. You never need to understand the system or the theory. It's more like, there's a base assumption, this pragmatism, that the way things are going and the way things are already are correct. So then the burden of proof, the evidence is on you to explain to me why things need to change versus we both need to present something. Yeah, it's reductionistic. And I think there's so much about Western psychology that is incredibly reductionistic. Um, and you know what I love about these more justice-oriented and liberation frameworks is, you know, not only are we considering like the systems in which we live now, we're considering like ancestral trauma and ancestral healing and wisdom. And like, how can we become better ancestors to our, you know, future generations? So it's also like time is, you know, um, being held in a different way. Um, so just really trying to not be quite so reductionistic in our approach. So this doctor was not a fan of B.F. Skinner or behavioralism. Basically, the way he summarized it was carrot and stick parenting. But this is also what's done in management and also in corporate America and also how capitalism works. And he basically was saying that we need to rethink this and think better of it. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, Alfie Cohn. He's he's huge anti-behaviorist and he's like, his whole framework is all about like, how do you motivate kids through like intrinsic motivation and like, you know, listening to his stuff and like reading his stuff, it it makes sense. And it sounds like really enticing, but then you remember like these kids have to go to school and they have to like take standardized tests and go to college. And you know, all of these, it's it's like the, the dialectics of this, like you want to like raise and motivate children to be these free thinkers who will do things based on what they feel in their you know, souls, but then also like get in line because they have to function in society. And so be, and because of that, like I, I can't recommend Alfie Cone stuff because it doesn't work in the world. But at the same time, like I can't recommend pure behavioralism stuff either because it really neglects this whole other part of a, a person's being and, you know, contributors to, why these behaviors happen in the first place. I was thinking when I was listening to that segment about the financial crisis, because it was caused by all these derivatives, which is like you take a bunch of stuff and then you make stuff off of the stuff and then you make other stuff off of the stuff you made, right? And which at that point, nobody understands. Yeah, I still don't really understand it. (laughs) So how I'm going to tie it back to this is 
you got a kid and if they do well in school, they get an A. So if they get an A, I tell them I will give them something. But A is the reward. So I give them a reward for getting the reward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It becomes this other derivative product. And it just made me think about this country and how so many of these things, even with systems of carrot and stick, it's all derivative products now, where it's like a reward on top of a reward on top of a reward or a stick on top of a stick on top of a stick. Mm -hmm. Everything is on steroids. Everything is magnified, right? And everything is like, feels like higher stakes, which then we feel in our bodies and in our minds, we just feel more stressed just existing. Yeah, I mean, it really goes to, um, you know, feeds into the moving goalpost idea of like people reach a goal and then they're like, what's next? What's next? They don't even know how to celebrate. I think so many of, you know, my clientele, because I see very, you know, high performing people who have a sense of perfectionism, like the the over overthinking overachievers. Um, and so much of their problems stem from anxiety about, why am I not happy when I have reached all of these like, you know, goals on paper and like really helping them separate like who you are and your level of happiness actually has very little to do with your success. So you've already described some different modalities to mental health. Can you give us some more approaches that have evolved over time and how they work and perhaps which ones you personally prefer or maybe which combinations you prefer? Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, historically we, we see the medical psychopathology model. That's like the DSM five. That's when you get this diagnosis and you, you know, meet these criteria and you like fit this, this box. Um, you know, that's really like, you know, what's wrong with you as, um, medical psychopathology. And then, you know, from there we can think of it as, you know, what happened to you? And that's more trauma informed. You have this idea of like, Things that happen to you in your life matter and that shape the way that you are now. Um, and then you throw in like attachment oriented, like what happened to you? What happened to your caregivers? How did what happened to your caregivers influence the way that they raised you, which then influenced, you know, your individual trauma? So the, the, the liberation approach is what happened to you, your people? What's still happening? You know, and what, what can we do to mobilize healing for it? Both, you know, within your communities and collective right now, but also what can we mobilize in, you know, ancestral healing and wisdom that your people know. Um, and then like, and that's, I would say like, if you ask this question to like 10 different therapists, you'll, you'll get 10 different answers of what they would highlight as the uh, things that are like important to them. You know, there's more like kind of run of the mill, um, approaches such as like cognitive behavioral therapy, where it's like, your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions are in a triangle and they all influence each other. And from there, there's like these third wave cognitive um, therapies, which, you know, is based on CBT, but then also involves like a good degree of mindfulness, like acceptance commitment therapy um, or dialectical behavioral therapy, which is often used for people with personality disorders and just like difficulty with um, emotion regulation. Um, and then there's the relational interpersonal model where, um, the idea is everything that we do happens in connection with humans. Um, we, we are harmed in connection with others and we heal in connection with others. And so then it's really, um, you know, the therapy relationship becomes part of the healing where you can have, um, a, a corrective emotional experience with your therapist to have like a stable attachment to that person. And they can 
you know, model and template how repair looks like and how do you talk through difficult things um, and be solid for you in a way that maybe your caregivers really couldn't. Um, and then there's also some experiential therapies that are really taking off. You know, um, some examples are like EMDR, like eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is a very trauma focused therapy, um, or like somatic experiencing also for trauma or um, internal family systems. Like there's so many that are just like, this is the here and now what's going on in the room, you know, between us and what's happening in your body. All the somatic therapies are um, in that like bucket of, of experiential therapies. So there's really just so many. Um, but I really think of the way that I work to be primarily in this relational interpersonal frame with systems informed approach, you know, like, I, I don't think you can be justice oriented and not be systems informed, right? I think of like, nothing that you bring to me is just you. It's it's the product of your conditioning and life experience. Um, and then when it comes to like the skills that I help people build, um, I like to draw on ACTS, which is acceptance commitment therapy, which um, is, you know, has some like roots in mindfulness and, um, not judging the like our, our thoughts good or bad or like not trying to change our thoughts and how do we sort of make peace and accept um, our thoughts and sort of defuse from the ones that are more distressing. Um, and then recently I've been studying a little bit more on radically open dialectical behavior therapy, which is um, a skills type of therapy um, for people who are over controlled. So people who tend to be really rigid, like highly perfectionist, highly anxious people who like to have a lot of order and rules. And something you already touched upon is white supremacy. And when we think of white supremacy, we think of organizations like the KKK rather than seeing it as an ideology. It's like saying evil is an actual organization. And outside of that organization, there is no evil which really lets white supremacy off the hook as far as how pervasive and internalized it is. So can you explain to us how white supremacy can be an ideology and what that ideology entails? Yeah, so white supremacy operates on a pervasive systemic level. We are born into it and it's it's like the water that we drink, you know, from the day we are born. So we don't question it. It becomes the default, the norm. Um, you know, there are actually a, a set of white supremacy cultural values identified by Jones and Okun um, in the early 2000s that really break down the ways that certain values that we've normalized and integrated into our daily lives as just like, you know, standards for living um, and we're like as work ethic can be rooted in white supremacy culture. So um, examples are like perfectionism, um, worship of the written word, um, paternalism, um, defensiveness. Um, there's, there's a whole set of them. And, you know, we think of these as like, you know, professionalism or, you know, even science are rooted in white supremacy. The idea of objectivity as being a thing, even like the concept of time, you know, we are so like start on time end on time. And like, how can we, you know, you know, really expand our understanding of time as kind of a colonial construct to control us because maybe we have other things going on in our lives that require us to take time away from whatever it is that we're working on. And also like hard deadlines, for example, some people sacrifice sleep. I mean, I know I've pulled up plenty of 
you know, all nighters um, to meet deadlines and not because I wasn't good with time, but it was just like, I just had so much to do. Um, and it was nothing that we ever really questioned. You know, it's, it's this ideology that operates on the basis of the white body and um, its cultural norms as being the default or the ideal. So these are the values that society aligns with success and achievement. Um, and they're all rooted in white supremacy culture. And of course, you know, all of this is rooted in capitalism um, as well as achievement, because we know that, you know, worth and perfectionism are definitely you know, long arms of capitalism as well, and also really ingrained in this white supremacy culture. Speaking of time, a lot of people think Albert Einstein won his Nobel Prize on his theory of relativity, which actually covers a lot about time. But actually, he won it on the photoelectric effect. And one of the reasons why is because even though his seminal work is on the theory of relativity, he had this debate with a philosopher, Henry Bergson, I believe. And the debate was about time, that Einstein cannot define time. So ultimately, he couldn't win that debate. He couldn't make a case that time is more than a concept that humans carry in their heads. And that's part of the reason why he didn't win for the theory of relativity. So to your point, then, even the idea of time, which we just take as like, oh, it's a given. It's just like a real thing. It's an objective thing. It's actually yeah. a construct. Yeah, I didn't know that about Einstein. That's fascinating. So to what you just spoke of, then, what is internalized white supremacy? Yeah, so it's internalizing these set of cultural values to be one's own individual values. Um, and, and for many BIPOC, it's this, you know, gymnastic contortionism that we go through in order to fit in and find our ro role within the dominant culture and use it as a survival tactic. You know, in, in some ways it's assimilation. Um, and it's not pathological at all. You know, I think like, when people hear the words white supremacy, they immediately tense up and bald. And like, especially internalized white supremacy. Oh my gosh, you're saying that it lives in me? Like, that's not me. You know, we're so quick and defensive and saying we're so quick, like other is like, that's, you know, that's the other, the bad apples, the other people, not me. Um, and I mean, that's one of the things that really maintain white supremacy um, is if we're so defensive that we're unable to even examine the ways that it operates and is perpetuated within ourselves and our own relationships. And it truly, it lives in all of us. And that's not bad. It's just how it is, because how can it not? We're steeped in this and in our culture. Um, so it's completely normal for you know, BIPOC and immigrants to have this sense of internalized white supremacy. It's how we know how to get our needs met and play by the rules of the dominant culture. Um, and I also want to highlight that white supremacy culture is a global phenomenon. So this shows up in other cultures, too. People think it's only Western, but, you know, colorism in Asian societies are huge or casteism in, in India. Um and at its extreme, you know, internalized white supremacy can really be a, a betrayal to one's own cultural values in order to fit in. Um, but it can also be incredibly lonely because, you know, what are you willing to sacrifice in order to fit in? And wouldn't it be better to find a place to belong instead? Um, and I don't think most people think about those two as different, you know, fit in and belonging are used interchangeably. But I really think of them as as two different ideas and like just they feel different just in your body as you even say the words. 
Along those lines, then, one of your most popular video series was on how Western psychology is rooted in white supremacy. Again, not the organization, but the ideology. But the ideology then gets rooted into institutions. This is how we get institutional racism. Your video series was eye-opening for a lot of people. But again, whenever you challenge white supremacy and the power structure, you'll also get a lot of pushback. But you know, this is not the podcast where we go, to be fair to white Western psychology, just as we won't say, well, to be fair to men's rights, because to be fair to what? Men already have all the rights. It's others who are trying to catch up. Spending any more energy uplifting the already uplifted doesn't actually create balance or fairness, but more inequity. Western society has already centered Western culture and Western practices. Every day is White History Month. So let's not retread any more of that and explore what we haven't been told, like how Western psychology is not only rooted in white supremacy, but also male chauvinism. So, you know, Western psychology was born of the dominant culture and power structure of its time, which was originally very white, male, cishet, ableist, patriarchal. You know, and I actually recently learned this bit of information about how so many original psychoanalysts were Jewish um, because at that time, like, you know, around World War II, it was such a persecuted identity that in order to find survival, they had to align with the medical institution and, you know, make psychology more medicalized as, as a means to survival. And that just like was such a light bulb moment for me. It's like, ah, it makes so much sense because the, you know, fathers of these ideology were also trying to survive in the systems of their time. You know, there's been so many iterations of Western psychology and it's constantly evolving. You know, it wasn't that long ago that homosexuality was in the DSM as a disorder. And, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that Freud spent much of his professional career studying, quote unquote, hysterical women. And he noted that the problems he believed them to, you know, have were because of masturbation. So the field has certainly come a long way, but we can't forget the origins and the ways that these beliefs persist, especially in a medicalized model of mental health or just in these kind of like siloed ideas of like psychology as being such an individual experience. And if you just sort of like look inside and treat the neurochemical imbalances and think differently, you'll be all healed. (laughs) If you just fuck your feelings, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Didn't the American Psychiatric Association also acknowledge this? Yeah, they recently published uh, an apology for their complicity and upholding of systemic racism. Uh, they dropped this apology on MLK Day, which, you know, definitely uh, triggered a lot of feelings for people because it felt very performative. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in this statement, they did acknowledge how both historically and in current times, there's a lot of medicalized racism that shows up in the field of psychiatry. Um, you know, for example, the, the differential diagnosis of bipolar versus schizophrenia and white versus black people exhibiting psychotic symptoms. If you're white, you're a lot more likely to get a bipolar diagnosis. And if you're black, you're a lot likely, more likely to get a schizophrenia diagnosis. And obviously, you know, anything along the schizophrenia, schizoaffective spectrum has a lot more stigma. Um, so, you know, their apology is a start, but they didn't really, um, identify any action steps for change. And, you know, it's pretty inadequate considering, um, how overdue it was and their lack of action steps. Um, and also if you look at their executive board, it still consists entirely of white presenting psychiatrists. 
I think also in your videos, you talked about how a lot of research into what we think is just universal mental frameworks was based off of studies done on volunteers of students. And the students were mostly, you know, white men. Yeah, white college students. Yeah, white college students, obviously educated, probably mostly rich. So then you use that to universalize. So that in itself was another example that you gave that I wanted to mention about white supremacy and male chauvinism rooted into psychology. Yeah, for sure. People don't know fitness and health and weight loss. A lot of the studies are also done on men and also on male rats. So, mm. so there's a lot of that rooted in health and uh, fitness, weight loss, all that. Yeah, yeah. Also, the American Psychiatric Association, what ties to that and what that makes me think about is uh, the studies, the psychological experiments and studies scientists were doing on Japanese Americans in the American concentration camps during World War II. The chrysanthemum and the sword study, which really legitimized the mindless, submissive Asian myth, which we live in, especially for Asian Americans, we live in that. If you're born here, you are born into that belief system, and then you might buy into it yourself. Actually, everybody listening to this should also do their own research. Just start looking stuff up. You'll find so much more than the stuff we're bringing up. And because there's so much more, you might even be horrified at how much you find. Yeah, it is kind of horrifying <laughs> once you start digging. Goes back to like these base assumptions, right? We didn't even know to look because we just didn't think there was anything to look for. And then once you do, you realize there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. I know you have a video about therapy being political, but did you yourself as a therapist always know this or did you come to realize this later? Oh, this definitely came later. Um, I went to a grad program with all white professors um, and, you know, they were still teaching cultural competency, which we know is an impossible ideal. You know, we can, you cannot be competent in every single culture. So now we think of it as cultural humility or cultural awareness. Um you know, and so in, in my grad program, it was like, talk about all your different experience having working worked with different diverse clients. It was kind of like catching Pokemon, like you've got your, you know, your gay clients here and your black clients there. And, you know, your single parent homes there. And it was like, oh, look, oh, I'm, I'm so well versed because I have like all of these different um, experiences. But, you know, these clients, they don't consent to their pain and suffering and unique life experiences and, and you know, family structures as, as being used as a way to uplift their therapist, like diversity quota. And, and so, um, you know, I've really shifted in the way that I think about this now as, you know, like every case that I take on is a cultural case. It doesn't matter what the person's you know background or lived experiences because everybody comes with their own culture um yeah so it's something i had to really 
unlearn in a lot of ways um, since graduating. Um, and then from there, relearn alternate replacement um, models of thinking um, more so than even like facts. In one of your videos, you said mental health and therapy is always political because you're not created in a vacuum. You don't live in a vacuum, right? So everything about us is affected by the politics and the culture and the society we live in. For sure. Yeah. No, mental health is inherently political because so much of the things that causes mental distress has to do with um, policy that affects mm. our rights. You know, whether it's immigration or abortion or, um, you know, equal wages or getting that promotion at work or getting entry to an institution where there's gatekeepers, like all of these elements in our life that are oppressive are rooted in some sort of policy that is political. And so any therapist who says like, why well, I, I just don't even do that. I'm just apolitical. <laughs> you're really missing um, just an inherent like foundation of what healing can and I think should look like. Um, you know, I, I, I've actually like heard more recently that, as the younger generation is educating themselves and like, I guess, learning on TikTok of what they should ask their therapist. Like some <laughs> therapists are like kind of upset, like, oh, and then this, this client had the audacity to ask me what my political views are. Can you believe it? As if that would matter. And, you know, and to that, I like bravo to, to the, you know, informed clients who are, <laughs> who are advocating for themselves. But it's also just like, it's time to really get with the program for, people who have been practicing in this one way, thinking that they can be this blank slate. Because, you know, what we know about what makes psychotherapy effective is like 80% the relationship. Yes, skills matters, and there's definitely an art to it, and, um, you know, different strokes for different folks. But if you have the ability to bear witness and make your clients feel seen and heard and valued in a way that is you know, reflective of their lived experience. And a lot of that comes with a degree of alignment and, you know, sometimes self-disclosure. Um, I learned, you know, from firsthand experience that I don't do my best work when I'm living or practicing in a culture that is so different from my own personal values. Um, I did my internship in a, a suburb of Houston that was very conservative. And I quickly moved back to Austin after that because I knew and I could see the ways that I didn't feel right in my bones in the ways that I was practicing psychology there. A recurring theme in your videos is how systematic oppression can influence your mental health. Can you explain to us what you mean by systematic oppression and how that can affect your mental health and where capitalism fits into all this? Yeah. So, you know, I want to highlight that um, I think it's both systematic and systemic. So systematic is like it's repeated because it's like you know, relentless, um, oppression is just, is you know, intersectional and everywhere, but it's systemic in that, like, it is not just something that's perpetuated by one person or in one domain. It is, you know, perpetuated by every single level and layer of hierarchy. Um, and, you know, for an example, it's like you, you go to work, you have your immediate boss who may be, you know, telling you to, do some things because of their boss. And then like their boss is getting their orders from like the bottom line of the organization. And this organization has to compete with other organizations that are like them in the ways that they're iterating. And, you know, 
so much of um, the struggles that a lot of my um, high achieving corporate um, clients are going through is the inherent systems of work that they have to live by, you know, so like, even if their their work offers them like really awesome benefits for, you know, pay time off and nice perks and um, mental health care, like at the end of the day, they are still gold by these pretty rigid metrics. And so much of what I've heard about um, how mental health is talked about, it's like, bring your whole self to work and just, you know, be authentic, unless your authenticity is like too much. And then you might just want to keep that under wraps, you know, like if you're like, not like performing in your depressive, anxious state, but you need to be hospitalized or, you know, are feeling suicidal or, you know, just like, it's like, yes, be your authentic self until you can, you know, no longer be palatable to us and then go hide that and go take care of that somewhere else. Um, and I think that absolutely is rooted in capitalism. Like we, we have the best intentions. I think like organizations do have the best intentions, but after a certain point, when you are trying to compete with the bottom line or your workers health, you know, mental health being one element of that. The other ones is like hours that people have to have to perform are, um, you know, not sustainable. Like the dollar tends to win. And so then you start seeing your workers as replaceable and, you know, no longer take care of them to the point where some of them really need. And, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just how capitalism works. You know, I think I spoke about it a little bit earlier with, you know, teaching kids intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. Like you, you cannot have a kid who is just so like driven by whatever they want to do that they refuse to sit in the circle for circle time at kindergarten and don't want to turn in their homework because it's, they're not interested in math. Like there, this is not a kid who will do well in the world that we have set up. So it really is this, this, the, the tension, this, the dialectics of it. Yeah. There's that classic song by Dolly Parton working nine to five. And she recently redid it, right. Where she changed the lyrics to working five to nine. Mm. Going back to your point about time and how we have to live by our work schedule, our life has to revolve around our work schedule. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, especially women. And like, we're really seeing it in this pandemic, you know, when when there's no childcare, when there's all these like homeschooling, like it's the women's careers who really suffer. It's the women who are, are still kind of expected to carry on the lion's share of both, you know, things going at, at home and in their office, especially women who hold high power, high prestige jobs. I mean, but women with all types of jobs, you know, we, yeah, it's, it's really unsustainable. Another recurring theme in this podcast is the topic of decolonization. So for you as a psychologist and a woman of color, what is decolonization? Uh, I think of decolonization as examining the systems um, in which we are embedded and really finding the areas that can be you know, unlearned and re- relearned or rediscovered um, that better suits humans and the ways that humans are structured. Um, it's finding the ways that power over dynamics operate at every level of our lives. 
um, and questioning like which of these values do we need to keep and which can we find some ways to um, depart from. You know, and I think in psychology, it, it's really giving voice and power back to the clients and back to the systems which in which they are born into, you know, not, not the systems in like the colonial systems, but like their ancestral systems, the, 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 the wisdom that they know in their bones and the, in the cultural values. And, you know, especially with like collectivism and, um, you know, people of color and that, you know, we are taught that our collective wisdom and cultural values are not as important or sec- secondary. Like we need to assimilate or acculturate as, as a means of survival. And I think of decolonization as, no, we don't. Like, how do we amplify those existing wisdoms and actually tear down the colonial systems that are operating and that govern what mental health is and, you know, should look like? I spoke earlier about how poor and in particular poor people of color are stigmatized. And one of the ways Western culture rooted in white supremacy has done this is through IQ. You made a great point about how intelligence and IQ are not the same, and I think this is liberating for a lot of people to hear who often feel like imposters. So can you talk to us about intelligence and IQ? Yeah, so there's so many different um, models of intelligence. And, you know, when we think about intelligence on a pap- on the paper, you know, all the standardized testing, the IQ tests that happen, and we think about things that can be measured. And so then we're not thinking about like kinesthetic intelligence or like music or even intrapersonal wisdom. Like some people are just very in tune to what's going on in their bodies, whereas some people are really have no idea that they even are connected to their bodies. (laughs) Um, And so there's intelligence in all of these forms that are just not easily measured. And so we kind of like forsake those and say, okay, let's put intelligence in these, in this box. And that's, that's through IQ. And, um, you know, so CHC theory is like the, the leading is does for Cattell, Horn, Carroll theory. And it's like the three psychologists who came up with this and like, you know, there's the IQ tests are really rooted in these theories. They, 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 they break intelligence down into 13 domains of measurable, um, cognitive abilities. And they are, um, verbal comprehension, fluid reasoning, visual spatial reasoning, processing speed, working memory, auditory processing. There's there's so many um, that can be measured. And some of them tend to be a little more innate. I guess nothing's like truly innate, but you know, you are you you are they tend to be more consistent. Consistent, yes. It tends to be consistent throughout the lifespan. Um, and those are things like memory and processing speed. Um, but then we also have these domains that are very much influenced by the quality of education that you get, such as, you know, verbal comprehension or, you know, the domains that we consider crystallized intelligence, things that we know by learning. And so, of course, children who get really good education and especially really good early childhood education are going to have better verbal comprehension. They are exposed to books and, um, you know, preschool. So, um, you know, if when we determine who gets services and who is deemed like special education or has a learning disability based on the results of these tests and, and only the results of these tests, of course, certain categories of children are stratified into these lower intelligence or like 
you know, more um, limited functioning. Um, and that's not always a reflection of their abilities because they may have, you know, intelligence in areas that are not measurable by an IQ test. Um, but there's also different ways to look at it because, you know, some of these children may actually be behind because they didn't get a very enriching environment and then they need more support and need more one-on-one attention. And so like if they have special education services, that's one way for them to access more of the curriculum. But then you also think about the stigma that that, that you know, puts on a child and then how, you know, special education programs have a special place, uh, you know, a very solid place in the school to prison pipeline. So it's just such a double-edged sword in, in so many ways. Seems like IQ just measures what it measures and it doesn't measure what it doesn't measure. Exactly. I often think about like the Western idea of intelligence. I think about like when uh, I watch movies or I hear people talking about like aliens, the way they think about the aliens is always like just this giant brain and no body. (laughs) And to them, it's like supreme intelligence. That's why like people want to upload their brains onto something because you talked about different intelligences and they don't even know they have a body. To them, it is this like just data. Floating head. Yeah, it's this floating head data that you Mm -hmm. can download because if you can download it, then whatever you are can be measured just by binary numbers. Yeah. And it's like, okay, dude, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, intelligence is actually does not correlate towards life success. You know, I, I, I think of, you know, the higher intelligence people, people who, you know, intelligence in like the IQ way, but also in like the broader idea of intelligence as a construct. People who are more intelligent tend to have more anxiety and depression. They tend to um, be twice exceptional where they are also struggling with something um, that is a, you know, I guess like a, an, an area of need in some ways. Um, and life is just harder in some ways for people who are extremely intelligent. Can you imagine like not feeling like anybody in the world gets you because they just do not fire in the same level of cylinders as your brain is firing? Like it'd be really lonely. Um, and so we, we like tend to really put intelligence on this pedestal, but it's such a small slice of, you know, what makes a person fulfilled and happy and successful in in all definitions of the word success. Yeah. I often wonder how much of it is the tail wagging the dog, meaning is their intelligence making them anxious or is their anxiety, their perfectionism, their obsessiveness makes them score higher on certain tests or especially like standardized school tests? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I know a lot of like very quote unquote successful lawyers and they all are insomniacs. And they actually have told me, a lot of them have independently come up with this conclusion that they didn't want to get any treatment for their insomnia. And secondly, they have a lot of obsessiveness and uh, anxiety, and they don't want to manage that either because they say that's what keeps them sharp. That's what makes them smart because they'll keep repeating these things in their minds over and over. So it's like, do they really have an innate good memory or they just ruminate on the same thing over and over so they never forget? Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. If you're willing to kill yourself and ruminate on some kind of project for a company, then your company will reward you. Oh, absolutely. So a lot of those tests will reward you for those unhealthy behaviors and say you're intelligent. Capitalism will reward you for the right kinds of mental health issues if it benefits their bottom line, but will punish you for the ones that don't. And if you burn out, then that's an individual moral failing. 
It's your own weakness. But my point is, is then maybe we're measuring this thing backwards and we're measuring like anxiety <laughs> or these unhealthy things, like even a lack of compassion or empathy and saying those should be lauded. And so instead of making you feel bad about it by saying these are anxiety or things that are not serving you or society, we're going to say you should be proud you're like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's there's like a, a balance of with all of this, you know, like to a, a certain point, like it really can breed, quote unquote, more success. But then, yeah, what you're describing is like at the cost of what? Like how exhausting must it be to, to be these people? Something we have all heard is fight or flight. But as an immigrant to this country trying not to get ostracized, neither of those really resonated with me. But then you talked about another response, fawning. Can you explain what that is and why we do it? Yeah, so fawning um, was coined by Pete Walker in the early 2000s, and it's it's kind of this fourth I, fourth trauma response. So fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Um, fight, flight, freeze are very like nervous system autonomic responses, whereas fawning is a learned behavior. It's when um, you know children beginning. This is all rooted in childhood and early attachment wounds. Um, children learn that in order to survive, they must predict and anticipate the needs, the emotional needs of the adults and caregivers in their world, because they know that when people around them get upset, then they will become the subject of abuse. So then they get really good at people pleasing and being really passive and submissive and helpful um, and bridge building and, you know, likable uh, in order to survive. And that way they can get their needs met by first meeting the needs of other people. And so, you know, I think of fawning as kind of a, you know, an assimilation um, response too for immigrants because the way that we can get a foothold in this country is by learning the lingo and anticipating the needs of, you know, the dominant culture. And so fawning is, is not, you know, people like to say like, oh, that sounds like so manipulative, but it's not rooted in like power or control. It's rooted in fear. You know, people who respond with fawning, it's, it's because this is the way to survival. It's the quickest, safest way that they know how to, you know, not be hurt. When I think of like a lot of those ideas about model minority or this like immigrant good student, I wonder how much of that was just us fawning, you know, just trying to please and not get in trouble because we felt like the stakes are so much higher for us. Yeah, for sure. And the stakes really are. I think one of those situations that trigger a lot of fight, flight, freeze, fawn response for a lot of us is with casual everyday aggressions. I don't want to call it micro because they aren't minor. It's more like they happen so often you lose track. It's like what you said earlier, systematic. It's constantly recurring, right? I kind of liken it to a jab in boxing, which they actually use also the term systematic. The person is very systematic with their jabs, meaning they're consistent with it because hundreds get thrown in a fight. So you might think it's minor just based on sheer volume, but if you've ever been hit in the face by one, there's nothing minor about getting punched. So then what are some ways to stop casual harm in their tracks when you can't always walk away from everyone or fight everyone? Yeah. Um, you know, I think a, a just a still face, like you know, people are making some jokes and you're like clearly not laughing and some ki- eye contact is a, a pretty good way to you know show that you are not amused. Um, you can ask like, what do you mean by that? 
or uh, I don't get it. Can you explain why that's funny? And, you know, like put the spotlight back on them because when people have to explain the uh, origins or the rationale of their like quote unquote micro aggressive jokes or statements, like they get real uncomfortable and real squirmy quickly. Um, and so, you know, putting it back on them uh, is, is a great way for them to learn like, hey, maybe I shouldn't be saying this anymore. Or I can know <laughs> my audience better. Um, but it's, it, I also think it's so like context dependent because like, sure, you can have this like arsenal of like tips and tricks that you can use to, you know, talk back to these, these comments, but depending on the context, like it might not be safe and this might be your boss, you know? So you say, like, what do you mean by that? And you know, you lose your job the next week or you get, you know, like the labeled as like antagonistic or abrasive. You know, so it's not always safe to be able to call out these casual aggressions as they happen. And that's, you know, part of why fawning is something that we learn to do. We're like, ha ha ha, that's so funny. Okay, moving on back to this thing, you know? Um, so we, we have to really have a whole bunch of different tricks in our, our arsenal of, of how to, of how to handle it. Um, I think in recent years, I've gotten better at making that like eye contact, like, hmm kind of uh response especially you know in non-professional situations i mean even in professional situations when it's come up in sessions you know i was like hey let's pause for a moment you know how do you think that landed with me um what what motivated you to say this and what were you trying to convey um and so it's just kind of a gentle call in of like maybe you said this really offhandedly but given like my identity and given the weight that your words hold, maybe it didn't land that way. And so let's just unpack it a little bit. I also have gotten a lot better at cutting out the toxic people in my life who, <laughs> you know, would be more apt to use these things casually. Like I don't, I don't need to be surrounded by people like that. Um, and that's been really liberating. I've, I've learned more recently that just because you're friends with someone out of habit doesn't mean you need to bring them into your future. Tell us about racial gaslighting and DARVO. Yeah, so DARVO stands for Deny, Attack, Reverse Victim, and Offender. And it was coined by uh, Dr. Jennifer Freud, um, professor of psychology at the University of Oregon. Um, and, and it's a very common um, response that people who gaslight use. So you know, with any gaslighting, it's like a minimizing or invalidating of your concerns. Um, and, uh, you know, denying like, no, 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 that's not how you really feel. Attack is actually, you know, what you said here was offensive to me, because uh -huh. blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, reverse victim offender, like they make themselves the victims to be fair to me and my racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, or, you know, but you know, usually with race, it's like, I grew up really poor. You don't mm. know what it's like. You know, even though you're Asian, you had more money or class or whatever. Like, you know, they, they bring up these things that are like sidebars to the issue at hand. And so for racial gaslighting, it's the minimizing of, you know, experiences of harm that people have from these casual um, aggressions, these casual everyday racism that people, people experience. Um, and it's so, so common and people do it in this reflexive way that they don't even realize um, that they're being darvoed or that they're darvoing others. Because when people 
are defensive. You know, when you're called out for something, there's that like tightening of the body, that freeze response. And you're just like, oh shit, how do I get myself out of this? And, you know, just as a pure survival instinct, the quickest way is like, okay, it's not actually my fault. And here's why. And so it just comes out as, as this reflex. And that's why it's so important to slow down with what's going on in our bodies and uh, slow down with examining like, why did I respond that way? What was coming up for me that made me feel like I needed to defend myself? Was I actually being attacked here when this person was explaining how their experiences of racism, you know, actually feel to them? Um, yeah. And, and, it's it's very much again like a, a white supremacy cultural value is is defensiveness. You know, we as a society have a hard time taking responsibility, especially at first call out. You know, maybe if this happens a lot, they're like, okay, well shit, I gotta look at this. But initially it's, you know, almost guaranteed that most people will be like, actually, no, you're wrong. And here's why. My intentions were good, okay? <laughs> Something you speak about is how some therapists miss how America can be so confusing to people who come from immigrant families. Why is America so confusing for us? Because I'm still confused. Yeah, I really think of this as, you know, collectivism versus individualism. A lot of immigrants come from collectivist societies where, you know, for better or for worse, our own experience is reflective of our collective and vice versa. Um, you know, and certainly I'm not saying that collectivism is like the best or the only way or, you know, there's there's a lot of toxicity and, and shame and shaming that happens in collectivist cultures, too. Um, but one of the beauties of collectivist culture is this like generosity of spirit and this like desire to help out um, those around us and those that we care about and um, really putting the, you know, well-being of the collective at the same level as our own well-being, if not above our own well-being. Um, whereas, you know, Western American culture and society is very individualistic where, um, you know, I do me and you do you and that's that. And so when you come in like, you know, with this like more the merrier, when when everyone's happy, I'm happy, and everyone around you you is like, no, you know, I'm going to do me. You can just give and give and give and not have any of that reciprocity. And so, so much of that confusion can come from just the exhaustion it takes because, you know, we're also just templated to say, well, maybe I'm just not giving enough. I'll just give more. And if I give more, then like people will finally reciprocate and it doesn't really happen. Um, and I think the model minority myth for Asian Americans certainly add to that because of that expectation of like, oh yeah, you know. As, as the Asian smart kid, you're going to do my homework, but you won't ever be invited to the cool kids party. You know, it's, it's this lack of reciprocity, but there's still that hope. Yeah, it's confusing. It's exhausting. So from my own experience, I've always felt uncomfortable when people have tried to label me as introvert or extrovert or try to do this for my own culture, which is Korean culture. At first, it was a gut response, even as a kid. Most of my childhood peers loved discovering the concept of introversion, extroversion, because for them, it felt like it defined something for them. Whereas for me, it was the opposite of liberation, but trying to force a round peg into a square hole. It was confining. 
I feel the same way with those corporate personality tests that try to fit you into some kind of ABC box. As an adult, I can now put into words what that gut reaction was, which is this Western framework of subject and object, you versus me, or me as an individual and how I relate to others, or me as the subject relating to objects. But as a Korean person, if I want to say my parents, I say 우리 부모님, which translates to our parents. Even though they aren't your parents, everything is a collective we. There is no stranger. Everyone is an aunt or an uncle. Ajashi, ajuma, imo. So I still tend to say we a lot in English, which white Americans keep joking that it's a royal we. And they mean that as a negative, like I'm being like arrogant or something. But that's their framework. For me, I'm still very much collectivist. So a lot of these individualist frameworks of understanding the self is still not only confusing, but it makes me uncomfortable. It also feels like gaslighting because it's saying their individualist thinking is the default. I find this especially to be the case when I talk about politics. Their way isn't conditioned. It's just like a feature of reality. Yeah, objectivity is a thing. Yeah. It's not a thing. Yeah. And it's like people get so offended when I talk about like, no, I don't like those like Myers-Briggs tests or I don't like introversion, extroversion. It's like, if you do, fine, but I don't. But it's like the fact that I don't like it offends them in some way, which speaks to like how I have to validate their system. Yeah. I mean, they're also not the most psychometrically sound. <laughs> they have some face validity, right? It's like, ooh, I'm a Sagittarius, I'm a Scorpio, you know? It's kind of the same thing. Like, I'm an ENFJ. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I heard for a while those used to be popular in like dating profiles, but I heard that went away. So that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. Something I found liberating is when you talk about the difference between guilt and shame. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So um, a lot of people tend to use those two words uh, interchangeably. But when we think about guilt as I did something bad and shame as I am bad. As, as my person. And, you know, I think shame also gets a bad rep. And I'm also I'm going to make some videos on this too, because we also tend to think, even with that distinction of guilt and shame, that like shame is this inherently bad, terrible thing. Um, and so we're like, how do we get rid of it as fast as we can? Um, so, because it feels so icky, like it is, you know, the stomach dropping sensation. Um, but there's a difference between like this trait as a pathogenic trait where, you know, it becomes part of who you are versus shame as a state where it is a temporary discomfort, unease, you know, stomach dropping sensation because you actually did something really messed up and you need to learn about it. You need to learn why you're feeling this way and how you can sort of metamorphosize some of this uncomfortable, healthy, adaptive shame into guilt. Because when we're in shame, we can't act. We're just like, oh shit, oh my God, you know, we're stuck, we're, we're paralyzed. Um, but, you know, when we're in guilt, we're like, okay, like we need to, you know, make repairs. Like this is the time for us to spring into action to like, you know, right some of the wrongs that we've done. And because I think so many people in our society are just so uncomfortable with shame at all, we try to jump preemptively to guilt without actually like, learning and sitting and getting to know the features of the discomfort of this shame. What is it teaching you? And this is absolutely related to white fragility because with, you know, white supremacy culture, it's like, this is gross defense, 
you know, Darvo, get rid of, like, I'm not, I'm not sitting with this. Why? Why do I need to sit with this? You know, I didn't do anything wrong. Or like, oh, shit, I need to be a good white person. What's like, you know, the Robin DeAngelo says like the good versus the bad white person. How can I go and like do all these things? And so other people will know that I'm a good white person. That's, you know, the black boxes on their Instagrams and like the, all the performative allyship um, comes from this, like wanting to transform into guilt so quickly with, you know, to just to offload that sensation of shame within their bodies rather than like, okay, like, let me sit with it long enough to, you know, get to know it a little bit and, and learn something from it. So I can actually put some of this transformed energy to, you know, actions that matter. And so we can't do that if we're just hopping over the discomfort so quickly, you know, then, then we just get to guilt, uh, do this one performative thing. I've done off, you know, I've offloaded my guilt. I didn't feel that shame for that long anyway. So now here I am, I posted my black square and now I'm done. But certainly we don't want to sit with like pathogenic shame as a trait where it's like every day feels like, I'm just a worthless being like, that's not healthy. That's not, um, you know, certainly not what we're striving for, but I think, you know, with this idea of shame and guilt being different things, so many of us are so quick to just want to bypass the shame stage when there's a lot we can learn from it. And it's a necessary part of human development. This probably goes back to those books I was talking about where (laughs) people don't want to sit and learn. I mean, shame forever isn't good, but it's like, now I remember the book that launched all of these series. It was The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yes! Oh gosh, that book drives me nuts. People don't know the guy used to be a pickup artist. Mark, yes, 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 yes. He was a pickup artist and he's like extremely misogynist even to this day. Yes, he is! But for whatever reason, you know, he's very popular in the thought leader circles and it launched a whole bunch of other books by other people and he has another book about like something about not giving a fuck again, like part two, you know, (laughs) 13 rules about not giving a fuck or something like that. (laughs) Maybe there is something about like, you don't want to sit in shame forever, but it's bypassing or kind of like confirmation bias, where it's like confirming people's innate want to just skip over that process and go straight to guilt or just don't feel anything and just move on. And you're just shameless, you know? Yeah. Like I'm good, right? I'm good. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. 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 Something, uh, I actually never heard of until your videos was unhitch. What does unhitch mean? Yeah, so um, that that's a um, a term from ACT, you know, acceptance commitment therapy, where you know we have these thoughts that are just floating through our heads all the time, and we tend to see them as as reality. Um, and we get so fused to it and we just really like in our heads, play them out from beginning to end. And then like oftentimes start the cycle all over again with just a different, um, you know, path and our, our thoughts actually become our perceived reality, but they're not actually our reality. And so unhitching or diffusing, you know, diffusion, um, from our thoughts is just sort of separating our sense of self, like who we are and our core self from our thoughts, like letting our thoughts be there, but not letting them take up more space or become our reality or living our lives as if our thoughts are actually real. You know, so one of my favorite um, like CBT quotes that I would love to just, like put on a poster in my office is, don't believe everything you think. And that's, you know, again, I think, as we were talking about earlier, so related to like our, you know, the, the floating brain idea of, of like intelligence and cognition as like king to our, our experiences when in actuality, it's 
you know, only one slice. And actually, it's the slowest part to come online when, when we experience things in our perception. Like, we experience them viscerally and on a body somatic level first. And that's why like trauma lives in the body. And then we have some emotional responses to it. And the meaning making, the last part is the cognition. And yet that's the only part most of us, you know, really focus on. I guess like behaviors too, which comes afterwards. But, you know, in terms of what's happening in our bodies, it's the last thing that comes online. I feel a lot of good mental health is just clarifying things. So you don't feel like you're such an outsider. Yeah. And another liberating clarification you made was explaining how agency is not control. I think this is especially liberating for activists who always feel a tension between collectivist needs versus personal needs. So can you explain to us then the difference between control and agency? Yeah, so I think um, people are so uncomfortable with not having control and they they want to... Um, you know, be able to predict the future with control. But, you know, once you start controlling, you can't stop controlling because it, it really hinges on you having every single piece of the puzzle and like, you know, orchestrating every single thing in your life just right. So things will go according to your mind's eye's plan. And yet, you know, things rarely do. And when things go off, you know, off the rails, you kind of freak out like, oh, oh gosh, you know, my plans are completely out the window. Um, and so, you know, control really comes this place from a place of fear of what's going to happen if I don't do things exactly the way I want to do them, where the world doesn't, you know, respond in the same way. Um, whereas agency comes from a place of possibility. Like, how can I orchestrate the things that are within my realm of action? what I can act on um, such that there is the possibility for the best possible outcome. So it, 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 you know, then the unknown becomes exciting because it's like, Ooh, you know, potential, what can happen here? Like I've, I'm, I'm ready. Like whatever will happen, I'll be able to, you know, tackle. Um, So it doesn't hinge on things needing to happen a certain way, way in order to feel like you, um, can be in the driver's seat. Things you have power over. Yes, exactly. This is my last question for you. Why is resting a political act? So resting is a political act because A, it is, it is necessary. It is part of the activist cycle. Um, you know, we must sustain ourselves so that we can stay in the fight for as long as possible. Um, and in order to do that, we have to take care of ourselves. We have to rest. And also not resting is such a capitalist idea of just like working yourself to the bones always. Um, and so when you take the time to care for yourself, it is, it's a, it's a radical act of resistance because you're saying that like, I'm doing this because this is what I need in order to stay in the fight. And this is also what you may not expect from me. Um, and it doesn't mean that I care any less about these cause. Um, you know, I think of this as kind of like parallel to Adrienne Marie Brown's new book, um, Pleasure Activism, where she writes about joy and pleasure and, you know, enjoyment of life as being such a political act. Because so much of what we, you know, think about with activism is like strife and resistance and violence. Um, whereas like living well, you know, living well is the best revenge. Um, 
And it's also just such a necessary part of sustainability for any sort of activism. I think it goes back to what we were talking about, about just being conditioned and born in this world. Like a lot of people, myself included, have a hard time sleeping in because I feel guilty. I feel not even like a guilt where I'm learning something from it, just like a pointless guilt because I feel like it's a productive time because we feel like time is money. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, even like the, um, like a, a different flavor of this is like, okay, well, maybe I'm not making money, but how can I still be productive, right? Like, can't just listen to music on a Saturday afternoon. I have to clean while I listen to music or a yeah. you know, or I, if I'm cleaning, I have to listen to a podcast. I always have to be learning or I'm going to go on a walk, but I'm going to make sure it's going to be a good podcast so I can like, you know, feed my brain at the same time. Like we don't allow as much time or value for stillness and just being. And that's ultimately what rest is, is just letting your body be in, you know, its natural state without trying to get something out of it. You know, I've, I've asked people, when was the last time you bought an album? Because a lot of people love music, right? When was the last time you bought an album, whether it's all digital or not, and just sat there with some headphones and just listened to the album? Yeah, the whole album? <laughs> yeah, and or just listen to a playlist. Everybody I know, they listen to music while they're doing stuff. And they say the last time they actually just sat and listened to the music and enjoyed the music or really like paid attention to the lyrics or all those things was like in high school or maybe in college. But now they feel guilty where, what, you're just listening to music? You're not listening to music while you're like running? <laughs> like music is now just like a soundtrack for working out or running. You can't just listen to music. And so I find a lot of people haven't done that since they were a child. And I think a lot of that is because they feel like now as an adult, I'm not allowed to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's why I love live music. Like you go there and you're immersed in that experience. You have the collective effervescence of all these people who are there with the same goals. And, you know, you can't work out or do much of anything besides just like be in the, you're forced, you know, sweat of everyone else. Yeah. You're forced to have fun. <laughs> But it's so nice. Yes. Yes. So having fun is okay. It, absolutely. Your professional opinion <laughs> is that having fun is okay. Yes. I think having fun is not just okay. It is necessary. It's something I've been telling people in pandemic, you know, almost every week. What are your pockets of joy? How are you finding play this week? You have to play and laugh and find humor and fun because that is what makes life meaningful and worthwhile, especially when we're going through really hard times. Mm. I think that's more than enough for us to chew on. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. So where are all the places people can find you? Yeah, I'm on TikTok uh, as Dr. Han Ren, and I'm on Instagram under the same name. Um, and then you can also check out my website, which is drhanren.com. Cool. I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag.
You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hitting with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Pulse. South Pulse.